Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me into your home again this week to uh, um, rain answers down upon you with great joy and enthusiasm. <laughs> I have um, I've gotten my soundboard back and things are getting back into uh, action here. And so we will have our critical conversation show as usual this coming up Friday. Uh, where you guys can call in and talk to me and talk to Melissa as well. And um, we will have 7Cam and all of that. Um, and also, of course, uh, if you, we did do a show though this last Friday, and I thought we had a lot of fun and talked about some pretty interesting things. I also spoke about my feelings uh, and ideas about the passing of Ron Miscavige Sr., which happened this last week. And that was uh, very sad, and I had some things to say about that. And I won't repeat that here, but if you want to know, then it is on that show we did on Friday. And of course, uh, I put up a podcast this week about some abusive nonsense that was going on, uh, still goes on, I'm sure, in the C organization, and you guys can check that out. So those are all the plugs. Uh, let's go ahead and get to your questions now. Adam Masters, how does your position up the bridge affect you in the C org? I believe I heard you mention that the C org don't really recruit people already high up on the bridge on the OT levels, probably because it's better for the church that they are paying money for their courses rather than earning 50 bucks a week. You also mentioned that when you were staff and in the Sea Org, even though all your courses and auditing were free, you never had time to do them. However, some Sea Org members must get to OT. They are the ones who deliver the OT levels at the advanced orgs, flag, and on the free wins, so surely they must be OT themselves. Also, to work in quote-unquote sensitive areas like OSA and RTC, I expect they would be well up the bridge. Are they kids of rich public who put their children through the OT levels at a young age? Are they selected based on their dedication or knowledge of the tech or something else? It seems some people join the Sea Org and slave away at some lowly post for decades, while others will hotshot to the top to be personal envoys of Miscavige until he throws them in the hole. How does this all work? Hey, Adam, thank you for this question. And I understand why it can seem confusing or even contradictory trying to figure this whole thing out because it is a bit of a mess. And it is very, very arbitrary as to how people move up the bridge in the Sea Org or in Scientology staff. Um, you know, most staff end up paying, you know, for their OT levels and stuff and just do it that way. But Sea Org don't. And so it's it's not actually, I, I took this up because I wanted to clear up a couple of things that I might have said that could have been confusing or misleading, um, uh, you know, completely not purposefully, just it's it's a it's a little hard to explain sometimes. Um, so you said uh, so first off the thing about recruiting people uh, into the Sea Org who are already on the OT levels or are already reached the state of OT that does happen. I didn't mean to imply that there that we don't that we never went after OTs. We did all the time. Problem in trying to get an OT into the Sea Org is they're usually in massive amounts of debt. And they have a house and they have kids and mortgages and things. And so you have to deal with all that before you can kind of lift them out of their life and put them in the Sea Org. 
You can't have any ties to the outside world as a Sea Org member. So you can't own a house or, you know, have big debts that you have to keep servicing and things like that. So that's generally why we weren't going after the OTs. Um, and there is, of course, the matter that for the rich OTs, for the whales, the people who are really contributing money, you want them to keep paying. So, yeah, that is a factor as well that, you know, their income stream is more valuable to us than they are work as a Sea Org member. But that's really mostly a matter of the logistics of the problem, more so than we didn't want them in the Sea Org. We actually did. We wanted everybody in the Sea Org. Anybody we could get, we were going to go after. And anybody that we could deal with and deal with their problems and logistics, well, let's do it. You know, this would this was a, a series of steps you would have to do to arrive in the Sea Org if you couldn't come right away would be called a project prepare. And it was, the, you know, your the, the project to prepare you to come into the Sea Org, the steps you need to take in order to do that. And um, and so finishing actions, paying debts, you know, having your kids move out of the house, et cetera, might be part of a project prepare for somebody at that level. That takes time. It takes a lot of dedication and work and check back and working with them and having to reclose them to do it because, you you know, they would run into life problems and go, ah, screw it. I, I, the Sea Org just isn't going to happen. Then you have to go re-recruit them. Recruiters don't aren't really allowed a lot of leeway and time to be working long term on on um, recruitment prospects who are going to take a long time to arrive. They're more interested in the immediate right now. Who can we get? Because if you don't have somebody recruited this week, you're coming in with a big zero goose eggs, and that's unacceptable statistically. So you got to kind of balance, you know, how you, who you're going after and why and this is one of the main reasons why most Sea Org recruits are young kids, right out of school, still in school, just pick them up and get them out of there, um, you know, or recently graduated, second generation, because that's the, you know, there's the least amount of work you'd have to do with them to get them in. They have no obligations, no debts, no real life burden, you know. Okay, um, so that's kind of the bigger picture of Sea Org recruitment is get anybody you can, but you have to get them now, now, now. And uh, yes, sometimes bigger, beefier, more qualified kind of people were recruited. But like I said, they would take time and they would be more of an almost a special recruitment project in, them, in and of themselves. And generally, that sort of thing was done for OTs or for executive caliber, management caliber, you know, somebody that Miscavige maybe had a personal interest in or somebody at, at gold, like there's, you know, some kind of cine talent or, or photographic or, you know, video talent or something, right? Um, might, those might be the kind of people we're going to invest a little bit more time in because it's going to be more cost effective than having to train a new Sea Org member from the bottom up, you know, doesn't know anything about that skill set. Um, so that might be the kind of thing you would see more time and more resources invested in. And that was not very common. Most of the time, the Sea Org recruiters were working on the immediate get it now, get it now sort of thing. Um, okay, now as far as you mentioned, yeah, some people have to get to OT. That's true. And um, sometimes there is a <clears throat> there is what's called the Technical Training Corps, which is a full-time job of training 
to do a, an auditor job or a supervisor job, a technical job. There's also the administrative training core, which is where you send staff who or Sea Org who are going to be training to be executives or management personnel, right, administrative personnel. So you have a TTC and you have an ATC, and these two units are basic. It exists in in any org. And the staff who are going to go off for full-time training for specialized positions um, are going to be transferred into that unit. And then they'll do that training, and then they'll get back on their job. Well, if that job includes being an OT auditor, and you're not OT, then part of your TTC program is going to be getting your OT levels. And that happens from time to time, very rarely. Uh, because what we were really looking for were people who are already OT that we could plug in there. Because you don't want to wait for some schmuck to get, you know, months uh, to get through his OT levels so that he can then do the job you want him to do. You want him to do the job now. So uh, we tended to look for people who were already OT and transfer them into the TTC so they could fill that future auditor OT auditor slot or whatever slot it was we had them, you know, slotted for. Okay. Um, and we would, and there were only so many OTs in the Sea Org, people who had somehow gotten on the OT levels, you know, in the 70s even or the 80s. I mean, you know, there were some old folks around who had done the OT levels a long time ago. Still OT. So we would try to transfer them around. And it was actually sometimes easier to replace a high-powered executive who was OT with a non-OT, because it's not required that you be OT in order to be an executive in, in, in any level of Scientology. So um, so we would try to find some Joe Schmo who wasn't OT who could replace this guy. And we even replaced, or and I saw other people replace, senior executives of of Scientology churches who were OT so they could become auditors, so they could become OT auditors. This was in the Sea Org. So you might have somebody who was the deputy captain or who was just below that level on the on the organizing board, and we're taking them for to become an auditor. We're actually demoting them way down the chain of command to become an OT auditor just because they're OTs. And we don't we don't have time to make a new OT. We'll just take him. So that's kind of the trade-off of that is OTs are, you know, they're valuable and, and, and we would use them and utilize them as, as best we could. And you had to have OTs to be an OT auditor. You, there's no way around that. You, you cannot be non-OT and deliver the OT levels to people. So those are one of the few positions where it's absolutely required. And I wanted to take this up because you mentioned that you thought sensitive areas like OSA and RTC might be manned by OTs. They're not. Most people in OSA and RTC are not OTs. Some are. Um, and I think the people in charge are. But a lot of the staff are not. And not, some of them aren't even clear. Um, not a requirement. So uh, what is a requirement is if you're going to be dealing with any of the stuff where OT material might possibly be coming across your desk, then there might be an issue. But even then, most of the time, you would be sending that, that, that those documents or that, you know, like if somebody had to review um, Leah's show and there's going to be information about the OT levels on the show. 
well, they'll get an OT to watch the show and give them a report on what came up. And the, and the report won't have in it the actual OT information. It'll just say, yeah, they shared, you know, they were spewing confidential OT information. Or they just were saying, you know, I don't know how they communicate about that in OSA, actually. I have no idea if they lie to each other about it or if they're straight up about it. But somebody who is OT would be required to watch it. The non-OT wouldn't. And the non-OT would then, you know, like I said, get reports or whatever and deal with that. So so that's kind of how that – I have seen that work. Um, I just know for a fact that a bunch of people in OSA and RTC are not OTs. However, however, uh, the closer you get to the top, it tends to go in that direction. Um, and either that's because they're manning those command posts with veteran Sea Org members who've been around for so long that somehow over all those years they managed to get themselves up the OT levels. Or, as I mentioned earlier, they were already gotten to OT back when it was a lot easier to do it back in the 70s and 80s. And or uh, they're just not OT in the first place. Okay. As far as uh, your question about, you know, are they recruiting the kids of rich public who put their kids through the OT levels at a young age, sometimes, yeah, that actually has happened. I've seen that. There were second-gen Scientologists who were recruited from wealthy families. Um, I'm thinking about the Feshbacks, for example. Uh, a couple other families um, where kids were recruited uh, into the Sea Org who had done the OT levels uh, already, right, or who were already on them. So, yeah, so that does happen. And those people do tend to be the youngest and hottest and brightest and get, you know, flown up to the top. Um, that's how Jessica Feshback ended up uh, in Miscavige's uh, inner circle before she got the boot for screwing up with, uh, with Tommy Davis. Okay, so um, mainly you asked, are they selected based on their dedication or knowledge of the tech or something else? Mainly loyalty tests and dedication in terms of people going into sensitive areas. More so, that's more of a factor than their case level, than their OT level. Okay, and uh, at the end, you surmised it correctly that some people join the Sea Organ slave away at lower posts for decades and others get shot up to the top. You are absolutely right about that. That does happen. Um, and the exact opposite happens too. Uh, it, it's it's a wild, weird, crazy place. The Sea Org is is extremely chaotic, and the orders make it worse because of the personnel demands and the transfers and stuff. And actually, just so you guys know, um, Cyprian and I will be doing a future podcast in the next couple of weeks on this exact thing about how personnel and personnel transfers are done. And I'm going to go into a whole podcast about it because there's a lot to say about how insanely chaotic it is. Uh, however bad you think corporate America is with personnel and human resources, and it's pretty bad, they ain't got nothing on Scientology. So I think you guys will look forward to will be happy to hear about that whole thing when I break that all down. That'll come in a, in a couple of weeks. Thanks for asking about this, uh, Adam. Steve Wood. The Sea Organization is made up of the most fervent and dedicated followers of Scientology, and as a result, they have dedicated their lives to Scientology, earning a mere pittance, working crazy hours for virtually no income at all. Eventually, these individuals will become infirm and unable to continue to do Scientology, and at that point, what happens to them? 
Do they just dump them somewhere or is there a scheme to take care of these people? All right, Steve, thanks for asking. I am really not sure how this is being dealt with now, but what I can speak to is what I observed um, years ago when I was still in the Sea Org with older, infirm, senior citizen Sea Org members who literally could not work anymore or were at a place where they had to have such a reduced schedule that they were only showing up you know, about two or three hours a day, that kind of thing. It happens, and um, and they don't get thrown around or or beaten on. I never observed uh, that. However, I did observe an awful lot of verbal abuse and make wrong, and you know, God, and eye rolling and guilt trips and stuff like that. Definitely observed a lot of that with people who were either on medically um, caused special schedules, reduced schedules, or senior citizens and, and older folks. Um, and that would come and go. You know, it would depend on the pressures of the situation. Understand that, you know, a lot of the awful behavior that goes on in the Sea Org is a result of the stresses of the moment, more so than it is that there's a bunch of evil, malicious people working there. It's, it's really a, it's a, it's a, it's such a pressure keg. Uh, you know, they are powder keg, whatever, waiting, you know, waiting to go off all the time. And and people are always on pins and needles. They are always stressing out. It is really stressful. And that's why the awful behavior, that's why the eye rolling, ah, because here's this person, you know, freaking out. I'm not justifying it. I'm explaining it. None of this behavior is okay. It's just, this is why it happens, right? And it gets directed at the senior citizens as much as it gets directed at anybody else. So, um, however, however, in the longer term look, and when what I observed is that there came a point where it was pretty much acknowledged, yeah, okay, this person's done their their duty to God and country, and we're and and Hubbard, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna put them out to pasture, and and what and by that, um, they were put into senior living homes. And I only saw this a couple times. This was not like there's armies of senior citizens there. I, I I don't know at this point in time. I only saw this with a couple people. I also saw a couple other instances where people were, were fitness boarded. In other words, found unqualified to continue to be in the Sea Org because of their age or medical condition. This applies to medical conditions as well. And were basically kicked out, right? But they were they were given it was made sure that they had some family or some kind of situation to go to. Uh, they were not kicked out on the street. I I did not see that. I have heard of that happening, and I would not at all doubt that it has happened. But I'm just saying I have to be you know honest that I never saw it happen. I I saw these other things happen. Um, yeah, and that's kind of all I really know to say on this. You know, um, I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that given a choice, they would opt to want to kick the person out because the Sea Org is not really about paying for people who aren't working. You know, and money is so tight there and so unpredictable there that you know committing to a long-term care home billing system and stuff could be difficult unless the Sea Org member themselves was bringing their own money to the party if they had a trust fund or retirement or account from before they even got in the Sea Org 
and managed to hold on to it, by the way, because the Sea Org regs would be all over them to give that money over. But if they did happen to have some money or managed to hold on to some money, they would probably be the ones paying for their own care as much as possible. The Sea Org would not really particularly want to take care of them financially if it didn't have to. Uh, again, that's what I saw with my own two eyes, right? And yet, it's worth commenting on that I also saw some other Sea Org members who were like, no, we take care of our own and we'll take care of them. And they don't, we don't have to ship them off or have them, you know, have, have them turned over to other family members to take care of or something. We take care of our own. Well, you know, nice attitude, but it didn't really <laughs> work out that very often that it would actually be that way. So anyway, that's what I can say about that. Jonathan Perry, do you have any insights on transcendental meditation? I think it was John Atack who said it is as fraudulent as Scientology. Oddly enough, the reason I know about it is from Howard Stern. He swears that it fixed his mental health. The thing is, it's not a religion and it doesn't cost money. I'm assuming it's just kind of daydreaming your way out of bad thoughts. I haven't been able to find a lot of information about it online that would really satisfy my curiosity, so I was wondering if you had your own take on it. Hey, Jonathan, thank you for this. I got a briefing or there was a seminar on transcendental meditation at the uh, International Cultic Studies Association conference I went to in Philadelphia a few years ago, and I got a whole briefing on transcendental meditation, and it was quite interesting, and it's very culty, and it is not something that I would ever endorse or recommend people do. Um, how free it is, I can't speak to. I don't know if there's a point where money starts becoming involved, but I can say that there are levels of dedication or involvement to it and that it is deceptive from the very beginning because it actually is religious. It is a religious practice and it does have roots in and the, um, the meditation and the meditation, the secret word you're given to, to use and the whole little ritual involved there. That is a religious ritual. And you might be told it's not. That doesn't mean it's not. It is. And, and, there, and that, that deception is purposeful. It's knowing uh, because they want to get you involved and they don't want to scare you with this whole religion thing. But as you go deeper and deeper into this and become more and more committed to it and want to spend more and more time doing it, and this is the key, this is where they get you is with the time. Um, you start learning, um, you start becoming indoctrinated in the idea that your meditation has effects and consequences outside of yourself and that you are able to influence events outside of you by meditating. And that's bullshit. But that's what they, that's part of the dogma of TM. And they get people up to a point where they will be meditating all day. All day, all night, all day, all night. Like they'll just keep going. The, uh, children have been neglected. Families have been neglected. And then it gets even crazier because there's this goal or idea that through this deep meditation, you're not only bringing peace to the world, you can start levitating. You're actually trying to levitate yourself off the ground. And there's some very weird physical phenomena connected with this, with people sort of muscle spasming themselves up and sort of hopping about. It is 
the one of the weirdest things you are ever going to see. I've actually seen video of this. It's it's weird. That's where TM takes you. They don't breathe a word about any of this on day one or even year one. I mean, they really gradually bring you into this. And not everybody who does TM finds out about all this. This is upper level stuff. So not everybody who pursues TM knows about this or is even or is at all concerned about it. Um, you know, doing meditation a few times a day. Um, you know, mouthing some sounds at yourself to focus attention is pretty harmless as far as I'm concerned. I don't really have a problem with that level of meditation or mindfulness or whatever you want to call it in order to sort of tune yourself in, zone out the world, focus your thoughts, right? Um, kind of de-stress, maybe relieve some anxiety. If that is what meditation is for you, I'm, I'm two thumbs up. I don't, I don't care. But transcendental meditation is a is a is a very specific thing, and it is it is um, it's just there's a lot of deception going on there, and it takes some research and some looking to figure it out. And unfortunately, um, celebrities have gotten on board with this, and also it has invaded schools, school districts, uh, San Francisco, Chicago. There were cases that were brought against the state or the cities uh, and the school districts because they were trying to infiltrate schools and get kids meditating with TM. I'm not down with that. That is completely unacceptable behavior to me um, in the same way that I would never allow any um, Christian dogma, Hindu dogma, Muslim dogma, Scientology dogma to be taught to kids in public school as though it's true and real. Nor They should not be being taught transcendental meditation as though it's true and real. They are being deceived, and, they're, um, and it does go to really crazy places if you get more and more involved in this. So uh, my good friends Pat Ryan and uh, Joe Kelly were actually involved in this for years. They are um, uh, prominent in the ex-cult world, and they have talked at length about this, especially Pat. Uh, who spent years and years and years working directly for the organization, and um, and for the for the they have schools and universities. I mean, it's a big operation. Uh, people really don't appreciate or know too much about TM, and it's 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 way 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 bigger than Scientology, and in some ways more troubling. So it's um, because of its deceptiveness and the way that it is infiltrated society and gotten broad, wide acceptance uh, from celebrities as well. David Lynch promotes this. A whole bunch of, there's a whole cater of celebrities that, that have bought into this crap. They don't do their research any more than Joe Schmo on the internet does. You know, people think celebrities are, I don't know, somehow smarter than other people. And believe me, they are not. Uh, not because they're celebrities. There are some celebrities who are really smart, but not because they're celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they can fall for crap. You know, they can they fall for MLMs, multi-level marketing schemes, and they fall for transcendental meditation and they fall for Scientology just like everybody else. And when they endorse it, unfortunately, a whole lot of people start listening. And um, and I'm I'm I for one bring this up because I am so utterly disappointed in people like David David uh, Lynch, the director who's a strong proponent of, of TM and has been working uh, for years to try to 
to propagate it in the United States. And the, and the idiot has no idea what he's propagating or worse, he does. And he's trying to do it anyway. And, and I don't know which one it is with him, but uh, you know, pretty uncool. That's my rant about TM. That's what I kind of know about it. I, um, I will probably at some point I've been meaning ever since I went to that Philly conference to do a video about it, but I've never really gotten around to it. And this is the first time somebody asked me about it. So there's my uh, quick breakdown of, of some things I know about it. Matt, can you please explain GPMs? Oh, GPMs. All right. This is a Scientology thing. GPMs are goals, problem, masses. Okay. Goals, problem, masses. Uh, GPMs. These are the black masses of the reactive mind. These are the core. These are the things that make the reactive mind be what it is. And um, what are they? Well, they are, uh, they are, okay, Hubbard, Hubbard put forth this idea that the reason that Thetans are so screwed up ultimately has to do kind of with masses and electronics and that it is, is charge, it's electric charge that is accumulated through the resistance that is built up from problems that you've encountered over time. A problem in Scientology is defined as an intention, a, a force, a push in a direction. I have a goal to, I have a, I have a goal or an idea that I want to build widgets. I'm, I'm going to invest energy and time and resources into that goal. I'm going to push forward on that goal, right? That's the energy that I am investing in it. So that's my force or that's my intention. I will be met with problems, with, with counter force or counter intention to my intention. People are going to push back. They're going to say I shouldn't do it. They're going to try to fight me. They're going to they're going to try to make widgets of their own and by doing that they're going to be pushing back cuz they're going to say don't buy Shelton's widgets, buy ours, right? They're going to push back on mine. That's going to be a problem. Intention, counterintention, they clash. So Hubbard said that the energy that a thetan is investing in this that he's producing and creating actually is a physical universe quantity. It's real energy. The Thetan is not energy. The Thetan is an energy production unit. It's producing this energy and, and using it to push forward what he wants. And I say he generically, Thetans don't really have gender, but the Thetan wants whatever the Thetan wants and is using the body as a vehicle to, you know, uh, communicate and interact in the physical world and the Phaeton invests energy and time, et cetera. Okay. I think you kind of get the idea. It's very figurative. It's very like kind of, I, you know, I, I'm describing this. I'm, I'm trying my best to describe something that Hubbard didn't really spend a lot of time trying to describe. Okay. So I'm trying to make it clear to you, even though in Scientology, the stuff that covers this is way more general. You know, he just talks about intention, counterintention, push, push, right? And, and the energy and the mass that results from this. So, uh, so anyway, so if you imagine these two energy, these two fire hoses, you know, pushing against one another, 
the ball of water that would be, you know, building up between these two opposing fire hoses would be the goal problem mass. It would be, excuse me, the mass that's resulting from these energy compressing against one another because matter is just compressed energy. So if you're pushing, 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 you're investing in this goal and you spend an entire lifetime doing this. You want to make widgets. You, you dedicate this life to making widgets. And that's your job. That's your thing. You're the CEO of Widget Mania, and that's what you spend your whole life doing. And you're pushing back against the people who don't want widgets or don't want you doing that or whatever. And, and as a result, you have this, this mass building up of the problem created by the counter effort to your effort. And the goal problem mass thing is not just any problem. It's, it's goal kind of problem, like life goal problem. Like it's, it's, it's big goals. It's goals that actually span longer than one lifetime. Not that it's going to take you longer than one lifetime to accomplish the goal. It's just that this is the goal you as a Thetan have set for a whole series of lifetimes, a whole eon of your existence. Let's say, for whatever reason, you really get a gumption to go catch criminals. And you're going to be a cop. You're going to be a good guy. You're gonna, that's what you're going to do. And you're going to fight evil. And you're going to fight badness. You're going to fight criminals. Okay? And that's the goal. And that goal carries you as a Thetan through multiple lifetimes. You're a cop, and then you're a cop again, and then you get another body, and you're a cop again, and you're really into this, right? And this goal carries you forward for a good long time. And all that energy that you're expending in this is your force, right? Your effort, your intention. And it's being met and, and hit up against by the criminals. The criminals aren't, aren't on your goal line. They're anti your goal. They're against you. They want to commit crime. They want to, you know, reap the benefits of a criminal life. And they're not at all interested in being good. They want to be evil. So you're fighting them. And so you build up this mass, this energy mass, which becomes an actual matter. It becomes compressed energy. And you're carrying it around with you. I guess in the same way that Jacob Marley was carrying the 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 the, the um, chains of his sins, right? Like you're carrying this around with you from life to life, this mass, and this is what makes up your mind, your reactive mind, because these 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 identities. See, it, what ends up happening with the goal problem mass is you get very, very screwed up on the concept of identity. Because here's what Hubbard, I, I, I hope we're tracking so far. It's a little, this is very weird stuff. I, I know that, okay? So I'm really trying to do my best here. Um, you're carrying these, these masses around with you in your mind that have built up over these eons from this energy, right? And you end up doing a flip, you flip the script on yourself. You're going along as this cop, this, 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 this enforcer, this good guy for all these lifetimes. And then you just hit a brick wall. Somehow, whatever happens, you decide to change your mind. You know what? I'm going to be a criminal now. And you flip it. And you become the other end 
of your own GPM. You become the opposite identity that you've been fighting this whole time. You decide you, you, you become that. And now you're a criminal for life after life after life after life. You are now on this whole different goal that was opposite to the one you used to be on. You're compelled to do this through the mechanism of the GPM. You know, you, res you become what you resist, right? You resist what you, what you resist, you become. This is not just a, you know, this is basically the basic idea of the GPM is that your identity starts becoming compulsive and obsessive because of the content of these GPMs that you've built up over millennia of time. So whereas we talk about how each individual painful incident that happens to you every time you die, every time you're born, that's pretty painful. Every time bad things, violent things happen to you, you have what's called an engram, a single incident of pain and unconsciousness that, that is stored in your subconscious reactive mind and comes back on you later. Well, over all these trillania, these engrams start kind of, kind of, um, what's the word? Gathering on these GPMs. I mean, we're talking about a physical thing here. It's it's real live, real world energy, real world mass that is that you're carrying around with you. And these engrams, these moments of pain and unconsciousness, start accumulating on these GPMs. Don't ask me how, I, you know, this is all just made up, okay? But this is what Hubbard said. And he said that these engrams will sort of coagulate on these things. And so all that energy from all those engrams is sort of feeding this beast of a GPM and, and obsessively forcing you to have different identities. And after enough time has gone by, you got so many of these different GPMs that they're actually kind of getting in each other's way and they're influencing you in these crazy, crazy ways and making you feel very, very confused about who you really are <laughs> and what you really should be doing because you got, uh, you know, 20 different compulsions pushing and pulling you in 20 different ways. Kind of weird. In a way, it would be amazing if that was the explanation for multiple personalities and personality disorders and identity disorders. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we knew that was what the problem was and you just had to bust out an e-meter and start auditing people and get them up to the state of clear and then all that goes away and they're no longer so screwed up about their identity and about all these compulsive ideas about being a cop or being a robber or about being a barbarian or being a slave or being a king or being a fool. I mean, all these opposing identities rack up over time. And this is, you know, the basis of a lot of insanity and a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety. And you can imagine this explanation really makes a lot of sense to Scientologists who learn about it. Um, but it, none of it's true. <laughs> you know, uh, None of this stuff is real, but this is what Scientologists believe is real and is the, sort of at the root of a lot of personal problems and, and issues that we have. And then, okay, so this was all developed, by the way, just so you know, before all the Xenu stuff. 
The GPM stuff was stuff that Hubbard developed or invented or came up with in the early to mid-1960s. And after coming up with all this, he then came up with the whole Xenu thing with the body thetans. So um, when you do OT level two, most of what you're addressing are these GPMs. And then you get to OT3 and you start addressing the body thetans. And that's kind of how the relationship of those two things works in terms of when and how you address this in Scientology. You start, you can address the GPMs earlier on, on earlier levels having to do with getting up to clear, but OT2 also deals with them. So kind of crazy wild stuff, but um, that's my best, my best go. Uh, off the top of my head here at explaining GPMs, I hope it I hope it works. <laughs> Dodge Crockett, of all the criticism that is directed at L. Ron Hubbard on various websites, one thing that surprises me is how few people comment on how poor an author L. Ron Hubbard was. Near the beginning of Dianetics, Hubbard poses the following question: What is the goal of thought? Despite the question's obvious ambiguity, I can recall reading onward with eager anticipation of getting some insight into this question. For the remainder of the book, he did not even indirectly return to this question. I have this vision of Sea Org members burning the midnight oil in their dormitories, engaging in exegetic discourse, debating the possible meaning of such rhetorical questions. Am I right? I read his book, Fear, 1941. I couldn't believe how shallow and one-dimensional those characters were. Here's a bit of irony. In the book, the main character slips into a vortex and loses four hours of his life. By chance, it took me four hours to read the book. And like the main character, I want those four hours back too. Yeah, thanks, Dodge. I definitely have commented on Hubbard's um, inability and incompetence as a writer. I do not like Hubbard's fiction. I never have. I have tried over and over and over again. I read Battlefield Earth, and I think that was the one that I enjoyed the most. I read it a couple times, actually, when I was a Scientologist. Um, I read it back when I was a kid. I mean, when it first came out in 1980, I was 10 years old. I, I think I read it when I was like 12 or 13 or something. My friend in high school read it. He liked it. He thought it was a good science fiction book. You know, for high school kids, we were into that, right? Um, Mission Earth books, I hated. I thought they were awful. I mean, after about the first, second book, I felt like I was just torturous. And, I, and there were 10 of them. Oh, that was awful. I went back. I read Fear. I read Final Blackout. I've read some of his other Pulp Fiction work and... Big thumbs down. I, you know, I, I just, I don't know what to say. His, you're absolutely right. His characters are one-dimensional caricatures. Uh, he uses nothing but stereotypes when it comes to non-whites and, um, and women. And he, uh, his, his plotting is uh, very, very random. <laughs> And it's just not exciting stuff. You know, it's pulp fiction. That's about the quality of L. Ron Hubbard's writing. You know, some pulp fiction was really good stuff. I don't mean to bag, bag on all of it. But L. Ron Hubbard's brand of it was pounded out as quickly as you can. First draft is the final draft. And if you don't like it, well, go fuck yourself. That was Hubbard's attitude about his own writing. And he was very vindictive toward anybody who had something to say about it. 
That's L. Ron Hubbard. All right, let's do some flash answers. Tom Hartley, in your latest Q&A, you talk about Thetans coming into the universe at different times. Did Hubbard ever say where the Thetans come from? No, Hubbard only mentions a separation from the home universe uh, or separation from the main body of Theta. Whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Never really uh, elaborated or got into any more detail, at least not that I saw. John Patterson. I wondered if you were fair-gamed when you left the church. Also, is there someone or a process to determine who is fair-gamed and who is not? John, it's pretty much at this point completely up to whether David Miscavige personally wants the person ruined or not. Um, I don't think Scientology has enough people or resources to go after everybody they would like to. Um, you know, they, they haven't really gone after me hardly at all, especially compared to somebody like Leah or Mike or Tony or somebody who's way more prominent, way more in the public eye than I am. So I don't really hear a whole lot from them. Um, but they, and, and as far as we can tell, and I've talked about this with other exes and critics and stuff, as far as we can tell, it really has to do with whether you're on David Miscavige's radar or not. And, um, as far as I can tell, I haven't gotten on his radar and I'm okay with that. So there you go. Shannon Reed, how did you and Melissa meet? Was she ever involved in Scientology? No, Melissa and I met at the Secular Hub here in Denver. I didn't meet her until I moved here about five years ago or so. And um, we just kind of started dating after we had uh, gotten to know each other. And, um, and things went from there. She was never, ever in Scientology, never had any involvement with it. All right, that is our show for this week. Thanks very much, guys, for coming around and listening to me blabber on here. I hope that this was interesting, informative, and maybe entertaining. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.